Well, unless you are blissfully ignorant or simply choose to remain detached from what is going on in our world, you may be experiencing some anxiety this morning about the changes that are taking place in our society, no matter what side of various issues you might find yourself on. Some issues have been impacting Canada for 10 years or so, and so therefore for years, but our friends from south of the 49th are experiencing a new world now than what they had before. And there are some people visiting from the States this morning. Ryan Bean is here. And I'm just thinking that Ryan's church is going to experience something different or that something's going to be on their minds with all the things that are being talked about right now in the States. And whatever anxieties we have about these things, I was thinking about this, why is it that it would cause us anxiety? And I think... More than anything, it's because of the reactions that we're going to feel on the part of those around us. Because the fact is, I might have an opinion, and you might have a different opinion, and the fact that you have a different opinion from me is probably what's going to throw me for a loop as much as anything. Like, I can kind of live with holding my own opinion about things. I can handle that. And I think you can generally live okay with the opinion that you have. But when my opinion stands alongside your opinion, and all of a sudden there's that sense of tension between us, wowza, that feels strange. It makes us uncomfortable, for sure. If you take a position that is supportive of the changes that are taking place in society at so many levels, then the unloving statements made by people who don't support the changes likely upset you. And so in other words, if you don't take a a traditional position, if you take a non-traditional position on a lot of the things that are taking place in our world today, then when you hear what can be hate-filled speech and judgmental statements made and attitudes held by those who don't support the changes, I'm sure it causes you grief. They cause me grief too. In fact, they hurt me deeply especially when they come from what I would characterize in my own judgmental way as judgmental, self-righteous Christians. We as Christians have no right to condemn. We're called to love others even as God loves us and we love ourselves. We have no right to hate because our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love And defines love. In fact, I think that's the key principle that must be constantly kept in mind by us all. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love and defines love. And as a Christian, I'm convinced that apart and separated from God, who created the universe, who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as authentic love apart from him. God is, in fact, the definition of love. And this is the God whom we Christians must love and serve if we are to be Christians. Of course, there are many Christians who don't support the the changes taking place in society, but who in no way could be described as hateful and who are not judgmental and condemning. They simply believe that the traditional positions of the church honor God best. 
They are as loving and as accepting of others as could be, even while disagreeing with the changes taking place in our world, simply because they think that God disagrees with the changes. I pray that these loving Christians who remain grounded in what they take to be God-approved biblical positions will remain both absolutely committed to what they take to be the will of God on social issues and committed to equally loving everyone around them. I think this is the exact balance that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you happen to take a position that is not supportive of the changes taking place in society at so many levels then the unloving statements made by people who do support these changes likely upset you. The hate-filled, judgmental statements made and attitudes held by those who support change no doubt cause you grief. And they also cause me grief. And especially when they come from judgmental, self-righteous Christians. We as Christians have no right to condemn. We're called to love others even as God loves us and we love ourselves. We have no right to hate. Because our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love and defines love. In fact, let me say it again. I think that the key principle here and that must constantly be kept in mind by us all is that God is love. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love and defines love. And as a Christian, I'm convinced that apart and separated from God who created the universe, revealed to us in Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as authentic love. God is the definition of love, and this is the God whom we Christians must love and serve if we are to be Christians. And so whether you stand on this side or you stand on this side, it seems to me that ultimately the love of God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ is the standard whereby we need to live. And let God define for us what love is means there is no other place to stand as far as i'm concerned let god define for us what love means and we'll be there now there are christians of course who do support the changes taking place in society but who in no way could be described as hateful and who are not judgmental and condemning they're as loving and as accepting of others as could be even while disagreeing with the traditional positions the church has taken on various social issues I pray that these loving Christians will remain grounded in their belief in God and will remain both absolutely committed to God's will on social issues and committed to equally loving everyone around them. I pray for extra tolerance on their parts toward those of us who hold to the traditional positions, even as we extend grace and tolerance to those who advocate change. It's not easy seeing called into question principles that you think are very near the center of your belief system. When you think God's will established in the Bible and the traditions of the church needs to continue being our standard. Sometimes those of us who tend to continue to hold the traditional positions react in unloving ways as we try to protect what we think to be the truth. Please forgive us when we respond with anything less than the love and the grace of Christ. Because we need to. Well, there are preachers all over North America this morning who are making some kind of statement like that one, feeling like they have to. I don't feel like I have to, but I do feel like we need to respond somehow, that we can't just ignore a situation that is so in our faces. 
And that's kind of my response. It does, however, fit with what I wanted to talk about this morning. And the actual subject isn't that far from where we've been. If your social media contacts are like mine, you frequently are confronted with negative statements about Christians, Christianity, and the church. And what I want to say this morning is that there seems to me to be a problem with speaking about Christianity as generally representing something unloving. Like when people talk about the church and they talk about Christianity and they talk about Christians as being unloving, they talk about them being bigoted, we hold certain positions and because we do, therefore we end up looking really bad in society's eyes. I think society is making a huge mistake when they evaluate us that way. In fact, I would say that the evidence for what the church is and who Christ is, what Christianity is all about, points in exactly the opposite direction if we just take for a moment all the evidence combined about what it means to be Christian and Christianity. Now, before someone starts thinking that I'm unaware of the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition, I've seen the Monty Python flicks, okay? or the Canadian residential schools, or American slavery, or colonization, or racial prejudice, or countless other atrocities committed in the name of Christ. If you think I'm ignorant of those, let me assure you that I'm not. And they break my heart. And I'm absolutely convinced that they break the heart of God. These have been horrible tragedies. And they don't fit at all with the ethic set forth by Jesus Christ. There is a reason that Christ alone is judge. And it's because the rest of us share in human depravity. We have a very hard time not sinning ourselves. We certainly should not presume to judge others when we have all been so guilty. But the church's failings seem to be only part of the story. And what I want to talk about this morning is the other side of the story. Here's what I see in scripture. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I just want to ask the question this morning, Does the church have any kind of record that it can set forth that says, we do this? And I would say, with, I hope, holy pride, that we do. I think that the church does have a record of fulfilling this kind of scripture and being what God wants us to be. Look at this photo. I don't know if you can make that up. Can you see what that is? For those of you who were not here yesterday, that's Larry Luck sitting in a chair with John Coughlin standing over him, and John has a set of shears in his hands. And he is shaving Larry's head. And it wasn't a bet that was lost. It wasn't because John has some deep, dark secret on Larry that he's threatened to divulge. It's not blackmail. Larry willingly said, cut my hair and let me raise some money for the children's hospital here in Calgary. And Larry is just like his wife, Joanne. The two of them give and give and give 
and give. And so sometimes, several times a week, Joanne comes down here and fills our pantry full of food. And it takes her hours to do all of the shopping that she has to do in order to get food for the hungry and bring it down here and put it in our pantry. It takes her a lot of her week to do that. She spends a great deal of her time and effort simply so that she can feed the poor through us. Why does she do that? Why did Larry submit to this humiliation yesterday? There's only one reason. It's because Larry and Joanne love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. Because they're absolutely committed to his will for their lives. And so they've made a decision a long time ago. We're going to serve Jesus. And if it means that we have to make sacrifices to do so, we will. And the fact is that Larry and Joanne are two of the countless millions of Christians that in line with thousands of Christian-affiliated organizations have brought an unimaginable amount of good into our world. And again, I can stop there. If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but what about the bad? As I said earlier, I get the bad. I know that. I'm human. I'm responsible for the bad. I bring the bad into the church. I get that. Christianity is unfortunately comprised of people and not just God. And we are unruly. We're a sinful lot that is sometimes act despicably. It's just a fact. But here's my opinion. I think that even from a human perspective, Jesus the Messiah or Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Bar-Joseph from Nazareth in Galilee, born about 4 BC, is the most important, most admired, most followed human being who has ever lived. The social ethic he taught and exampled is considered the most important, the most revolutionary, the most widely influential, the loftiest social ethic ever conceived. The social community he created, the church, has been the most significant, most influential, most powerful force for good that the world has ever known. If the poor, the sick, the lonely, the heartbroken, the unattractive, the outcast, the hurting, the disadvantaged, the imprisoned, the persecuted, the oppressed, the self-destructive, the, the addictive, the demonized, the evil, and the rejected ones have received from someone a blessing a helping hand, a bed for recovery, a word of encouragement, an opportunity to arise from their misery, or an opportunity for healing, forgiveness, sustenance, grace, and love, there is a very good chance that the good things that they have received came their way ultimately because they were associated with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Jesus brings good things into our world. The extent to which the evils of humanity that otherwise would have been put upon each other, but which were avoided or overcome by Jesus and those who with genuine commitment have followed him is simply incalculable. We cannot begin to count all the good that has come into our world and all the bad that has been avoided simply because of Christ. And it just seems to me like there's no question about this. You can't, you can't question this kind of historical truth. So yes, there's been bad. I admit it. I share it. I've been part of it. But the good of Jesus in our world so outweighs the bad that it's amazing. So today, 
and there's lots of people who've been compelled to uh, reevaluate all this as if it's not maybe empirically true. There are, again, those who would speak of the Crusades, those who would talk about the Spanish Inquisition or colonization or Constantinianism or American imperialism or British colonialism or whatever you want to talk about. And talk about these things as if they're somehow directly related to Jesus and his true followers. And I would say that they're not. There are people who've claimed to be Christians who've been at the, somehow the, the forefront of all of these movements. But they were only to a lesser extent really what Christ wanted them to be. No one who has carefully read or even cursorily read the teachings and example of Jesus in the Bible could ever link together Jesus with these violations of what it means to be Christian. Human beings who truly and consistently followed his teachings would not, could not, perpetrate such sinfulness because they're following Jesus. He was entirely Nonviolent when it comes to governmental, institutional, and private action by his followers. Completely. You know, he had chances to say to his followers, let's take up swords. They tried. What did he say to them? No. This is not my kingdom. I have a different kind of kingdom than this. And so he specifically commanded against Violence. He specifically commanded against prejudice. He specifically commanded against attitudes toward others that are unloving. He taught his followers to love everyone, including themselves. He was accepting of all those who hurt, including those who greatly sin and then hurt. He and his closest followers made virtue, kindness, love, goodness, gentleness, humility, peacefulness, patience, meekness, and even non-judgmentalism, the core of Christian teaching about how to live. These, what I consider absolute facts, are pretty easy to verify. It's not hard to figure out exactly who Jesus is and what he expects. And my point is, is that I think the world would be better off, way better off, if everyone lived by the teachings and example of Jesus, even despite the far too many times when we have separated ourselves from his will and not been what he wants us to be. I think it's very difficult to show that violence and bigotry, exploitation, that any of these are linked to Christ. And if we lived the way that Jesus lived, they simply wouldn't be part of our history in any way. It's true that Christianity has a long time been associated with these things by many, violence, bigotry, exploitation. But I would disagree that there is any legitimate interpretation of the teachings, attitudes, or actions of Christ that would take him as having advocated such actions and attitudes. And I just say, what, what text in the New Testament, where would we go in the Gospels to see Jesus acting in some kind of reprehensible way? Where would you see Jesus teaching the poor and then mistreating them terribly? Where would you see Jesus mistreating those who sin? He's the kind of person who says things like, go and sin no more, neither do I hold this against you. And so it's not surprising to me that Christians like Larry Luck and Joanne Luck exist. 
And they're not the only ones. There have been throughout history so many people who've done the kinds of things that Larry and Joanne have done and done them even on a grander scale. In fact, right now, there's three people that you're going to meet. And I'd like for those who are talking about them to come up at this point. And we're going to just see some of the lives that those who follow after Jesus end up living. George Mueller begins his autobiography from his early childhood, at which time he confesses to being a shallow and misbehaving child. In fact, the death of his own mother fails to cause him much pause in his selfish actions. He abides by his father's wishes to enter seminary because ministers' lives in Germany promise relative comfort, and it would allow him to provide for his father's later years. His first years of education away from his father, though, find Mueller often in trouble. However, when a classmate invites him to a neighbor's home Bible study, Mueller begins to desire a sincere Christian lifestyle. He shares his newfound faith with his former friends who laugh. This fails to deter Mueller. His devotion deepens. He feels led to become a foreign missionary with a life of financial uncertainty. Mueller's father threatens to disown his son if Mueller continues this on this path. However, Mueller's devotion lies with God, and he pursues several possible assignments before moving to England. Once in England, Mueller, along with his new wife, soon begin to feel guilty for receiving a salary for their work for the Lord. Mueller feels that such financial accommodations fail to allow him to live by faith. Thus, he severs ties with the missions agency and cancels pew rental in his first church. Mueller records his journey of living by faith to strengthen the faith of weak believers and possibly for others to gain faith. After several years in ministry, Mueller meets a fellow minister named Crake, and the two men move to Bristol to begin the Scriptural Knowledge Institution. The institution serves many purposes, from religious education to literacy. They also ship Bibles and support foreign missionaries. The bulk of their ministry, however, involves housing England's rising population of orphans. With such ministries, or excuse me, without such ministries, the orphans frequently found themselves in immoral situations and overcrowded prisons. Without ever asking for money from another person or publishing the need of his ministry, only asking God, Mueller and his ministry operate the growing orphans' houses for decades in the area around Bristol, England. The orphan houses begin as one rented house for several dozen orphans. By the end of the record, Mueller has built three houses that serve the spiritual and physical needs of more than 1,000 orphan children. He attributes his success to, to the willingness, along with countless others, to follow the Lord's will and grow their faith even through hard times. Sundar Singh was raised as a member of the Sikh religion. Prior to his conversion, Sundar attended a primary school run by the American Presbyterian Mission, where the New Testament was read daily as a textbook. Sundar refused to read the Bible 
at the daily lessons. In the midst of his uh, youth, while he was only 14 years old, his mother died. And he was very close to her. She was a very saintly woman, and he underwent a crisis of faith. In his anger, Sunder burned one of the... um, uh, one of the Gospels, a copy of it, in public. And within three days, Sundar Singh could bear his misery no longer. And he um, he threatened to throw himself in front of a train. So in December 1903, he prayed all night for a sign from God that he existed. And... Um, Uh, the next train would arrive at 5 o'clock in the morning. He prayed for, I believe, seven hours, asking, Oh God, if there is a God, reveal thyself to me tonight. The hours passed. Suddenly the room was filled with a glow, and a man appeared before him. Sundar heard a voice say, How long will you defy me? I died for you. I have given my life for you. He saw the man's hands had been pierced by nails. Amazed that his vision had taken the unexpected form of Jesus, Sundar was convinced in his heart that Jesus was the true Savior and that he was alive. Sundar fell on his knees before him and experienced an astonishing peacefulness which he had never felt before. The vision disappeared, but peace and joy lingered within him. Despite his family's pleas, bribes, and threats, Sundar wanted to be baptized in the Christian faith. After his father spoke words of official rejection over him, Sundar became an outcast from his people. He cut off the hair that he had worn like every sick man long, and against great opposition, he was baptized on his birthday in 1905 in an English church in Simla. Conventional Indian churches were willing to grant him a pulpit, but their rules were foreign to his spirit. Indeed, he felt that a key reason the gospel was not accepted in India was because it came in a garb foreign to Indians. He decided to become a sadhu so that he could dedicate himself to the Lord Jesus. He was convinced that this was the best way to introduce the gospel to his people since it was the only way which his people were accustomed to. As a sadhu, he wore a yellow robe, lived on the charity of others, abandoned all uh, all possessions, and maintained celibacy. In this lifestyle, he was free to devote himself to the Lord. Dressed in his thin yellow robe, Sundar Singh took to the road and began a life of spreading the simple message of love and peace and rebirth through Jesus. He carried no money or other possessions, only a New Testament. Sundar journeyed much. He traveled all over India and Ceylon. Between 1918 and 1919, he visited Malaysia, Japan, and China. Between 1920 and 1922, he went to Western Europe, Australia, and Israel. He preached in many cities, such as Jerusalem, Lima, Berlin, and Amsterdam, among others. Despite his growing fame, Sundar retained a modest nature, desiring only to follow Jesus' example, to repay evil with kindness, and to win over his enemies by love. I would like to tell you the courageous and encouraging story of Corey Ten Boom. 
Her parents ran a small jewelry store in a narrow house in the heart of the Jewish section of Amsterdam, Holland. There in the ghetto of Amsterdam, they met many wonderful Jews. They were allowed to participate in their Sabbaths and in their feasts, and they studied the Old Testament together. <clears throat> Corey was living with her older sister and her father in Harlem when Holland surrendered to the Nazis. She was 48, unmarried, and working as a watchmaker in the shop that her grandfather had started in 1837. Her family were devoted members of the Dutch Reformed Church. Her father was known as a kind person and was a friend to half the people of the city of Harlem. Corey credits her father's example in inspiring her to help the Jews of Holland. He bravely chose to shield a mother and a newborn infant, even though it endangered his family's safety. He said knowing they could lose their lives for this innocent child would be considered the greatest honor to his family. Corey's involvement with the Dutch underground began with her acts of kindness in giving temporary shelter to her Jewish neighbors who were being driven out of their homes. She found places for them to stay in the Dutch countryside. Soon the word spread and more and more people came to her home for shelter. She quickly would find places for them and more would arrive. She had a false wall constructed in her bedroom behind which people could hide. After a year and a half, her home developed into the center of an underground ring that reached throughout Holland. She wondered how long all this activity, including hiding seven Jews in her own home, would remain a secret. On February 28, 1944, a man came to their shop and asked Corey to help him. He stated that he and his wife had been hiding Jews and his wife had been arrested. He needed 600 guilders to bribe a policeman for her freedom. Corey promised to help. Later, she found out that he was actually an informant who worked with the Nazis. He turned their family into the authorities, who raided their home and arrested them. Their Jewish guests made it to the secret room in time, and they were able to escape to the new quarters. Corey's father died within 10 days from illness, but Corey and her older sister, Betsy, remained in a series of prisons and concentration camps in Holland and in Germany. Instead of giving up, they took this opportunity to continue their work. Corey struggled and overcame her hatred towards the man who betrayed her family. And Corey and Betsy gave comfort to the other inmates. Each evening, they would hold worship services in Barrack 28 with their secret Bible and songs from memory. They would translate the life-giving scriptures from Dutch to German, and others would spread the word around the room in French, Polish, Russian, Czech, and back to Dutch. They felt these evenings under the light bulb was a preview of heaven. Her sister's health declined, and she died on December 16, 1944. Some of her last words were to encourage Corey to tell all that they had learned there, especially that... There was no pit so deep that Jesus was still, was not still deeper. Due to a clinical error, Corey was released from Ravenbrock one week before all the women her age were killed. She made her way back to Harlem and tried for a while to go back to her profession of watchmaking, but found she was no longer content doing that. She began traveling and telling the story of her family and what she and Betsy had learned in the concentration camp. Eventually, after the war was over, she was able to obtain a home for former inmates to come and heal from their experiences, and she continued to travel the world to tell her story. 
On one occasion in a church in Munich, after she spoke, a man approached her. He said he was a guard in Ravenbrook. He told her that since then he had become a Christian. He knew that God had forgiven him for the cruel things that he had done there, but he would like to hear it from her. He asked, Would you forgive me? She knew she had been given she knew she had been forgiven for her everyday sins. But her sister had died, a slow, terrible death there. And he wanted to erase that by simply asking her a question. He stood there with his hands out to hers and waited for the most difficult thing she ever had to do. She prayed, Jesus, help me to forgive. And she reached out her hand, took his, and cried, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She never knew God's love more intensely than she did then. Corey died on April 15, 1983, in Orange, California, on her 91st birthday. But her story is still told today. These stories of these individuals are fairly dramatic, and some of them are even well-known. But again, there are so many that are not so well-known. Thousands. Millions of people who have given themselves completely to serve Christ and have done so on behalf of a world who so badly needs what Jesus has to offer and Jesus is the only one who can offer it. And it's not just individuals. You know, today there are dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of very large Christian organizations that offer help to people all over the world. And you have a chance to give to those all the time. So we see them on TV and we hear about Compassion International or Teen Challenge or Salvation Army or Bread for the World or Food for the Hungry, Samaritan's Purse, and I could go on and on about all kinds of places. Those are some big ones. Here in Calgary, we have the Calgary Dream Center. We're aware of Zambia Mission Fund. Why do these people do the things that they do? Well, it's simply because... They are the church. It's because they give themselves completely to Jesus. And so there are individual churches like ours and there are whole denominations that give themselves to the world around them in order to make the world a better place. Well, what does it mean for you and me? First of all, I'm thrilled to my toes to be a Christian. I'm so happy and proud in a, in a non-arrogant, non-self-promoting, non-chest-pounding kind of way to be a follower of Jesus and to be associated with something so good. I would rather be associated with something that blesses humankind than something detrimental. In general, Christianity does far more good than harm even despite our failures and weaknesses. And we should be filled with joy because of the positive impact of Christ on our world. And it brings me joy. I hope it does you. The second thing is, is that it gives me hope that Christ will continue to be a positive force for good in our world, even at the most challenging moments. And so today, I think we live in a challenging time. I think it's, it's getting progressively more difficult to be a Christian in our world. 
and to state with some kind of openness the fact that we follow Jesus, that we believe who he is, and we're going to continue to believe and follow who he is. But because countless good has been done, I'm actually hopeful about the future. Over the centuries, billions of lives, and I think billions is accurate, billions of lives have been made better because of the influence of Jesus Christ. And we have a chance to continue this influence. And there's been no more important source for positive benefit to humanity than the church... And we need to continue that trend. And so because God has worked in the past so mightily, I continue to be hopeful, even when it appears that the world is moving drastically away from Jesus. Thirdly, it secures my faith to know all these things. If Jesus had this kind of positive impact on our world, this fact builds my trust in who he is and what he's done. Our world badly needs genuine Christian commitment and faith, and there are good reasons to think that God can continue his positive impact, and so I remain faithful. And then finally, it simply creates in my heart more love. Christ clearly loves our world. He loves us. And the only legitimate choice I have as a Christian, if I want to follow Christ, is to love like he did with his love. And so I'm hoping that wherever you stand today, on whatever issues, that the love of Christ ends up absolutely dominating your heart and your decisions. I do think it needs to be the love of Christ. I think our love has to be grounded in God. I think he's the only source for real, genuine, legitimate love. And so we need to stand there. But it's his nature as love that needs to speak most loudly out of the church. And our lives need to represent him mightily in our world today. And so to to those around you, be loving. Be gracious. Give yourselves. Be sacrificial. And my sense is that the world can be changed because of the impact of some loving Christians who decided to respond wholeheartedly to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, these are challenging times. There are ways in which the things that we have believed for millennia are being challenged. Father, I pray that you would help us to not just, not just stand where we've always stood for the sake of standing there. But help us in all we do, no matter where we stand, to stand with your love and your grace, blessed by your spirit. God, we want to be lights in our world. We want to be salt. We want to have influence. And I pray, God, that you would help our attitudes and our responses to you and to our world to be such that we can really be light and salt. Make this just ooze out of us and help us to be all you want us to be in response to our world. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.